You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with your hosts, Andy Grant and Apio Hunter. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. But you don't need to be a man to join us. The Real Men Feel Show is produced live each Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern for your growth and enjoyment. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and on Facebook, facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Show your support for Real Men Feel by shopping at realmenfeel.org slash swag, by visiting digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel, or even text us a tip. You can show some love for Real Men Feel by texting Real Men Feel, that's all one word, to 504-226-5306. You'll receive a link back to complete your tip and choose the amount. This is a weekly program and your reviews, comments, feedback, and participation are welcome during the live show and anytime in our Facebook group, on Twitter, or at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome to Real Men Feel. This is Andy Grant. Glad you are joining us once again for our weekly manly discussions of the hour. Uh, joining me as always, my friend and co-host, Mr. Apio Hunter. Good evening, Andy. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It's a bit of a mad scramble to get to be able to get logged in on time. Helping you know elderly parents with computer issues can always be a joy. Yes, indeed. Maybe that should be a show at some point. Right. Are are you an expert on that now? Can you be the guest for that topic? I might as well be. (laughs) Well, we we do have an expert, an expert of very different variety than that joining us tonight. We have a therapist, sex educator, author, and dad, Mr. Joe Langford, joining us. Welcome, Joe. Hi, guys. Hello. How are you doing, Joe? And and where are you coming to us from, Joe? I'm in Seattle. All right, cool. So, and tonight we're going to talk about... um, Talk about sex with teenage boys, and no, that, that's not quite right, is it? Phrasing. Um, we're gonna, yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of the, the perils of this topic. We're going to talk about having discussions about sex with teenage boys. That's, yeah, that's what we're yeah. That's your specialty. Got to set that tone right off the bat. So, so um, did, did you just have a fantastic sex talk with your dad and just knew as a kid this is the field I'm going to go into? No, almost the opposite, actually. Um, actually, it was uh, yeah, divorced parents, uh, single mom for the most part. Um, and she did some due diligence. She did a, a good job of trying to make sure like all the boxes were ticked and everything. But uh, Catholic and 80s. And so um, lots of either not wanting to talk about things or being afraid of things. So, but she had a couple of well-placed books lying around the house for me and, uh, and did a good job of kind of being there when I wanted to go to her for stuff. Like she, she was down for that. Um, so she, she had good efforts. <laughs> <laughs> so, so was your dad not in the picture at all? Your, was, was all the sex education just from your mom? Um, most of it was. Uh, he was in the picture, but uh, we didn't talk about that kind of stuff. So. Cool. Yeah, my, my folks got divorced when I was five. And they didn't talk to it. It was a very <clears throat> acrimonious divorce. Yet when I was 13, I got the talk from both of them in, within days apart. And I was like, <laughs> did they talk and plan this? But my mom had books and stuff. And my, my dad, it was, it was horrible. I was just remembering it today. Um, my dad was building a garage. So I'm, all these construction guys, he just pulled me aside. He's like, you know what your cock does, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, stop talking, please. <laughs> no, no. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, That's one of the worst ones I've heard. That's pretty terrible. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I was never the same. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's worst moment was uh, my prom night. Like, held her tongue. Whatever. I'm all dressed up, walking down, like getting in my car, and she like kind of starts walking back into the house and pokes her head back out. Safe sex is no sex. <laughs> she screams at the top of her lungs from the front porch. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah. But other than that, her, her method was kind of leaving books around the house, which were great um, and actually really helpful. Probably why I end up writing books, I suppose. So yeah. thanks, Mom. So, 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 at least, <laughs> so that some seed of your future was planted with that. that yeah. Yeah. Cool. And Apio, what, what, what was your experience like? I actually have to say that my, my, my experience is shockingly positive, considering that I grew up in a very conservative religious household myself. But my mom was very unorthodox in that regard. You know, even though she had very, very deeply uh, conservative religious beliefs, you know, from her Mormon you know, background. But nevertheless, um, she was surprisingly factual, matter of fact, and the discussions were never like awkward or anything like that. Whenever there was a question, um, she would actually be the one who oftentimes would broach the subject with me and just very matter of fact, just point out that, you know, this is what the expectations are. But if you are going to go down that road, at the very least, do things to protect yourself. And oh, that's actually really excellent. Yes, yes. I mean, she was very, very practical in that regard. I mean, to the point where she, she flat out said, I would have absolutely no problem whatsoever if you had a, you know, some pornographic magazine sitting out in the open and, and I knew that you were reading it. Where I would have a problem is if you are, if I find it hidden between your mattresses, because then I know that you feel, somehow feel ashamed and, you, and you, you're trying to hide it. Then I would have a problem. But if it's out in the open, I don't have a problem. So she was very, very progressive in that regard. Yeah. yeah. Well, getting in front of the ball like that as the parent and saying like, hey, this is what we're going to talk about today. Like yeah. that. And then that makes it not weird. If, you, yeah. if you're the kind of parent that does that on a regular basis, then it's fine. Like that's actually kind of the ideal. So good on yeah, her. That's yeah. great. Yeah, absolutely. And very, very ahead of her time, especially considering that she you grew up in a very, very, you know, being from Brazil, living out on the farm, you know, so you had all the Catholic influence, plus, you know, yeah. being very religious, um, not just Mormon, but also a Methodist background as well. So you had all wow. of those influences there. So <laughs> <laughs> the way that she handled it was shockingly good. You know, My mom had a, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. What, what about your mom? I was going to say, we had a, a, a porn thing as well. Um, I uh, had a, a buddy whose family had a bunch of rental homes around, and so I'd stay over at his house sometimes, and his family, I'd go and help them sometimes with new rentals or old rentals and clean up the place and get ready for new rentals. But So uh, my buddy and I are in the garage of this house, and we're cleaning, and we found, do you remember those like Christmas tree boxes? Like those refrigerator boxes, like this huge. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember. Full of porn, and so his mom came out, and we're like sitting in the box, like on this pile of porn, just like rolling around (laughs) in magazines and freaking out. And and his mom handled it really well. I think she was kind of having a heart attack, but she called my mom and explained, and they talked about it, made a deal. So I got like. I got like 12 magazines. I could take 12 magazines home. And my mom was like, I don't want to see them. If your brother finds out, they'll never find your body. <laughs> keep, them, <laughs> keep them out of the way. So I was like the coolest kid in seventh grade for like 15 minutes. That's, yeah, so I was going to, since we're, we're going down the porn road already, like <laughs> when, when I was a kid, it seemed like every neighborhood had its stash of Playboys in the woods. And, and that was mm-hmm. the porn for the neighborhood, right? So it's, an, it's like waterlogged and years old, but so, you know, you wouldn't dare touch it. It's falling apart. And that was the neighborhood porn collection. But you know, these days with, with porn literally at everybody's fingertips, just on demand, um, you know, everything imaginable and beyond, th- does that really change the dynamic of, of sexual discussions with teenagers? Oh, I think for sure. Actually, I was uh, maybe last summer or the summer before I was like, I was at 7-Eleven getting something and I was <laughs> noticing like, they still have those stupid plastic dividers over the magazines, like behind the counter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, what What are they doing? Like all the 12 year olds are sitting in the parking lot with their phones and their Slurpees looking at the porn. Like why, why, why is this still a thing that happens? So yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a different animal than it was when we were kids. And th- does, is there a way that, that porn can help and be like an educational tool or is it just destructive kind of no matter what? 
No, I'm not an anti-porn guy. I think I think there can be benefits to porn. I think it um, it can validate people, especially people like kids with alternative sexualities. They can like see themselves kind of represented on the screen in porn, sometimes in ways that they can't in just kind of regular media. Um, mm. But uh, in in learning about positions, developing a relationship with yourself and your own body, like what turns you on, what feels good, like all that kind of stuff can be really positive. I think. And then there is the abyss. Right. <laughs> That's a good description too. <laughs> yeah, I've I've seen uh, just more and more more and more adults, but I don't I don't know if it happens. Uh, is are you hearing this from teenagers all of like just you know recognizing that they get they're addicted to internet porn and just can't stop looking at it or anything? Is is, is that is that happening with with young folks? Yeah, I think so. I'm not I'm not like a a therapist that kind of subscribes to the idea of like media addiction. I don't I don't think it's an addiction. I think mm-hmm. it can cause problems though um, i put it more in the category of like an eating disorder so it's it's more like yeah like an eating disorder rather than like a true like alcoholism or something like yeah. like a real addiction um but it does definitely cause problems like if they can't stop looking at it it takes off a lot of um ocd stuff in some people i think and people who are needy and have gaps to fill um sometimes kids use that as sex ed which is not a great thing but mm-hmm. that happens interesting you know, when you're talking about those gaps is it typically the i mean the ones that come to my mind would be you know relationship issues within the family um self-esteem issues uh just being able to socialize well with other kids and so forth is that what you're referring to yeah and i think that mm-hmm. kind of all technologies sort of weaves its way into those gaps video games right. social media, porn all of it right it's like whatever whatever the preference is for for that particular child then yeah it fills voids in a really helpful way i mean it's just for me like i was talking sure. with my wife the other day like when was the last time i stood in line for 10 minutes for something and didn't like look at my phone the whole time you know what i mean like <laughs> nobody does that anymore like, um so yeah we use our technology to fill those kind of voids mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So your 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 first book is called Spare Me the Talk. Yes. And and so does that that implies to me that kind of the old version, the birds and the bees talk just just doesn't fly anymore or kids are just completely resistant, think they know it all. Like what what is the what's the general message behind that? Uh it was kind of sort of a tongue in cheek joke, but a little bit of that like the talk definitely looks different than it did before. Um and I like to joke and say it's not the talk, it's the talks. There's like more than one. It's not just like this one-time inoculation kind of thing. And then that it is a book that can sort of take the place of it. So for parents, mostly there's, you know, sections in the back of the books that are just for parents. But, uh, but if the parent didn't want to have those conversations with the kid, they can know that like they can give that book to the kid and then not have to worry about it. Like I, I worked really hard to cover the bases for them if they didn't want to be in there splashing around with the kids. So. And it, do you recommend either way, or is it really up to each family dynamic and individual? It's up to each family. Families use it in a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of parents will get the books, and then you know they say that they like they'll read a chapter on whatever, and then they'll go and do their stretches or have their glass of wine or whatever, and then go in and and have the talk with the kids. Or uh, sometimes they'll just give the kid the book and say, "Here you go. You're on your own." I've had kids say like they had the book and just kind of dog-eared page on a particular chapter and left it on the coffee table or something and then then the parents are going oh shit now i gotta go talk to him about anal sex or whatever it is so (laughs) as a kind of a clue to the parents like we need to have a talk about this so it's kind of it's kind of nice that way Hmm. and and so do you find that a lot of parents actually almost use that as their guides to have those conversations or to facilitate the conversations or yeah, I think uh, it works. It leans itself uh, really well to that, I think, because I, I kind of talk about a lot of factual stuff and a lot of my philosophy is in there. But what I really encourage parents to do is to kind of figure out whatever the topic is, talk about the thing, tell them, you know, your value that goes along with what that is, like what your stance is about it, and then mm-hmm. give them the facts, give them your philosophy on it, and get the right. hell out. <laughs> like short little bursts of energy for kids, you know, especially with. So the first book was for the boys. The second one is for the girls, um, but particularly with boys, like in and out, fast, little little tidbits, sound bites. Right, right. No, 
no intentional sexual reference there, but uh, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Is that where it all comes from? <laughs> so you, you did a separate book for girls, a separate book for, for boys. Is there really different language, different approach in, in how to discuss that, depending on what, what your child is? Yeah, I think uh, definitely a, a, a different approach. Um, you know, with I, with the girl book, I really tried to go for empowerment a little bit and just kind of a window mostly into what guys are like. So it's the only kind of book written for girls by a dude who knows about dudes. So I think it is kind of an interesting perspective on it. Those conversations can look a little different, I guess. Yeah, sure. You know, one of the things that I, one of the things I thought was very fascinating was on your website. One of the statistics that you mentioned was that only forty-eight percent of our youth nowadays identify themselves as being exclusively heterosexual, and I was actually kind of surprised by that. And so, when that comes up, I mean, how? How do those discussions typically go with the parents as once to know if that, if that subject does come up with, with them? Um, just in terms of like the, the range that kids can identify with. Yeah. Them. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just different. It, you know, it used to be like you're gay or you're straight. And then they right. figured out there was this thing called bisexual and that kind of put a spin on things. But now, I mean, the language has just broadened and evolved in almost kind of a, a a silly way like there's just uh, there's a lot of adjectives that someone can use to identify themselves sexually now and yeah. i don't necessarily think we need all of those but uh they're out there and between just kind of youthful creativity and the internet like there's mm -hmm. just a plethora of ways that kids can identify now and so it really can make for interesting conversations but it is also, I think, hard for people to wrap their brains around stuff in that sometimes as well. Yeah, I know, definitely. I mean, when you talk about all the additives, that's certainly something I still have a hard time keeping up with all of the different adjectives that are, that are you know, being bandied about. Well, even just the trans dynamics, like, you know, we've, yes. had, a, we've had a few decades to kind of get used to the, the gay conversation, mm -hmm. right? It's not Jack Tripper and Klinger from MASH anymore, but like the trans stuff has burned really fast and really bright i think and it's been it's just i think it's been pretty overwhelming for some people mm -hmm. to kind of get in there and understand and now this is a thing and um they've they got to wade into the pool with the gay conversation but sure yeah kind of been pushed in with the trans stuff right right you know it's interesting being i, I guess you could say semi i i identify with the letters of the LGBTQ community, but at the same time, part of me is, gets and thinks, why do we have to appropriate? At what point are we going to end up using the entire alphabet <laughs> to cover yes. the entire range of yep. <laughs> identities and everything else? It does become this kind of unwieldy alphabet soup after a while. But. Right, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So but the point so, I think is like identification and inclusion, and those are good mm -hmm. things. Yeah. So especially working with kids, like if kids come in and they have, like, I identify like this, this is where I stand. I just kind of go with it. All right, let's talk about that. And is, is so many adjectives showing up because kids are looking to identify with something and, and a new word almost is more attractive? Is that? I think that might be part of it as well. Um, but just, I think it's an opportunity for them to sort of examine themselves, which kids have always done. Like we've all done that, but now they can, um, like you said, like have a different way to identify that's not just gay or straight. There's mm -hmm. lots of different sides to the. So, so there are lots of new words in in the world's vocabulary around sexuality. Are some old words keep getting changed as well? So, if a, an, an adult might think, "Oh, I can talk, I can hear the words I know, and they just don't mean the same thing anymore." Um, I, well, a little bit, I guess. <clears throat> uh, like hermaphrodite is not a word that we say anymore, right? <laughs> like that, <laughs> right. that word's gone away. Uh, intersex is the preferred term for that. So yeah, I mean, there's some of those terms that definitely are, are antiquated. And even just like calling people homosexuals, like that sort of, mm -hmm. seems, From, smacks up very like the 70s or something like that, so. <laughs> right, or even the 80s for that matter. Yeah, yeah I guess that's true. Yeah. I guess thinking like friends with benefits and just new terms or like, oh, she's just your, we're just friends. Oh, and that does mean something that a parent thinks it's all nice and innocent, but it, it isn't. 
Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and like you know, like on my website, like friend is a verb now. Like that's a, I friended them. Like we're we're friending. <laughs> yeah, it's it's no longer a noun. It's now a verb. <laughs> right. But friends with benefits is uh, still a thing now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of cousins of hookup. Right, right. Speaking of hookup, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about hookup culture and so forth, and and. I know that's especially true around college age, you know, the college age. But as far as younger kids, have you been noticing that that's, they're very aware of that? And are they questioning Ed? And, and are they having conversations about um, <clears throat> healthier ways to approach relationships, especially as they get into to their college years? I, I think there's a little bit of both. Uh, hookup mm -hmm. culture is definitely a thing uh, mm -hmm. in high school. Um, oh. sometimes in middle school, but mostly I think of that as a high school slash college thing. Okay. Uh, definitely something that is still happening. Um, I don't know how consciously their kids are working to make it healthier, but I think the Me Too movement stuff that's happening right now is right. fantastic. And it is getting people to kind of step back a little bit, um, mostly the female identified people, but, uh, but getting people to kind of step back and be like, all right, pause for 30 seconds before they go in, which is fantastic with kids. Like anything that we can get kids to do to just like pause for 30 seconds before you touch them or grab the thing or hit send or whatever like, is, a, is a really right. good. So I think in that sense, like kids are kind of trying to do it a little bit healthier and mm -hmm. things are happening like, you know, the rates of teen pregnancy are going down and that is a really happy, good, positive thing. Right, um, yeah. Some people get too excited about that and think like, oh, so kids are having less sex because when they do the studies, the kids say they're not really having penis and vagina sex until they're like 16, 17, 18. Also a really good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's because a lot of those studies, that's only what they're asking about, right? So kids aren't having less sex. They're having different sex. So they're having, they're doing the blowjobs and they're doing the anal sex because you can't get pregnant, right? So the mm. rates of teen pregnancy are going down and that is a good thing. It's very creative, very clever of them, but because they don't talk about it in school the same way that they do penis and vagina sex, um, kids don't think of that necessarily as sex, right? Mm -hmm. So it's then like, like they don't even call it sex. They just say like, oh, we did anal last night. Like, oh, I got oral at the party. <laughs> um, and so like yeah so like syphilis and um like <laughs> chlamydia gonorrhea like all that stuff is is rising like the stis are going through the roof um, but pre teen pregnancy is going down so they're trying to do it a little bit different and there's some healthy benefits that are coming out of that but sure yes but there's also the side effects the side effects of, yeah right of, of the stis in particular right yeah yeah so i'm i'm one thing, one question that comes to my mind about that is that have have programs, at least in the schools and the school districts that do have sex education programs or or, or um, curriculum, do they talk? Are they able to keep up with the whole STI conversation and the multitude of ways that they can be transmitted? It, de it, it depends. <laughs> mm -hmm. It depends on the school. It depends on the school district. It depends gotcha. on the region and the teacher itself. So mm -hmm. there's lots of facets to that. There's some schools sure. where they really still don't want them to talk about condoms, period, at all. Yeah. Abstinence only. Like Abstinence where I am. Only. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, school districts or, or school systems where they don't want the teachers to be talking about things like anal sex um, mm -hmm. because it makes people uncomfortable. So a lot of the teachers, I think, could be doing that and are, are doing their best to do that, but I think their wings are a little bit clipped sometimes. Sure, because of the politics that are involved with the school districts and so forth. Yeah, and you, and you can make a pretty decent guess if you're talking about a, a liberal place or a conservative place, you can sort of sure. guess what their sex ed looks like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> if there's any at all, for that matter. Yeah. What, what, sort yeah. Of things, what sort of things should parents look out to know that, oh, it's time, I better have the discussion about sex or to realize they, they've waited too long and they're kind of missing the boat. What, what should they be on the lookout for? Um, I tend to coach parents to have the conversations before you think you need to have the conversation to so like, go ahead. You're not going to like 
freak your kid out or ruin their life or kill them or anything like that if you say penis to them before they're ready to hear the word penis. Like that isn't, isn't a thing. So I, I encourage parents to do that. And um, sidebar to that, I think the a good way to hold it and think about it is um, kids' development, like tracking your kids' development. So some people kind of don't hit puberty for a while. They're kind of late bloomers. Some kids start puberty and then they do it nice and slow. Um, and then some people kind of hit puberty and it's fast and nasty, boom, and just sort of wreak havocs on their body and then, and then they're done with it. So measuring a kid's, the more developed a kid's body is, the more curious they're going to be. So if your kid is, you know, the voice is changing or the boobs are growing or whatever, then get in there and start having those conversations because it's happening inside their brain and inside their heart and inside their hormones. Like it, it, stuff's happening. So and and is puberty happening at younger and younger ages? I, I read think about that. The environment is changing and puberty happens younger and younger. Is that is there? That yeah, happens? and I think there's a lot of things that can contribute to that. But yeah, it's it's definitely you can't bank that your kid's going to go through puberty the same time you did. It's not weird now for kids as young as like ten to be going through puberty. And girls tend to start it before boys. Hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's always been consistent. Yeah, yeah, gender-wise. Hmm. Hmm. That's that's that's. <laughs> all of us. Is, I'm just like absorbing so much information right now. <laughs> My brain is almost just like, okay, let me let me pause here for a second because <laughs> I need to you know process all this. This is this is very fascinating, very uh, you know interesting because. I mean, my kids entered my life when, you know, they were already well into their teens. And so I never really had that opportunity to have those conversations with them. But now I have grandkids. So this is for oh, me. Wow. The oldest is only six. So I'm like, okay, it's not not going to be too too long before, you know, I have to prepare myself if that subject comes up while they're visiting to have to have a, that conversation. Yeah. And to kind of, you know, watch, watch your kids and help them through it too yeah. as they go. Because those conversations probably will look a little different than it did for them. Yeah. Is that happening often as, as families, blended families and multi-generational households are, is it not just a parent to child conversation? I suppose so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think in, there's probably benefits to that and, and drawbacks as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, in the last couple of generations, like things have just looked so different. Like for us, like, I think things look very different than our parents and people, people our age. And then, uh, and for that generation that came after us, like it, it's all the same stuff that happens and in almost the same order, but the technology aspects of it just spin everything on its head. So it's a, it, it's a, the way that the kids are doing the stuff is very different now. So the technology of the discussion or the technology accelerating the development of kids? What, what do you mean? The, the way that kids are exploring sexuality or thinking about themselves or getting their answers uh, for their questions, uh, that they're um, interacting with each other, um, testing things out, uh, you know, trying on different aspects of their personality and their identity, um, you know, talking to their friends about sex, uh, that they're all doing that, all that stuff, just like we did, but they're just doing it through their screens. Okay. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I have a really weird job. <laughs> okay. So how, how did you how did you fall into this as, as your career and your interest? Um, it's a good question. I um, I've been working with teenagers literally since I was one. I went to a, a private school um, in New Mexico that at the time was a little cool and progressive. Not so much anymore, but. Um, there was a handful of us that were trained at my school. Uh, I think there was five of us that um, were trained as peer counselors. So if the kid didn't want to talk to a grown up, they could come and talk to us. And we got direct supervision from this master's level therapists at our school. And so that kind of put me on a trajectory. And so I've, I've worked in hospitals and group homes. Um, and I've done, I worked with foster care. Um, I've had my own private practice. So I've, I've been working with teenagers since I was a teenager. Um, and Sex is interesting to me, and then technology happened, like the internet happened, and then that obviously got folded into, you can't do sexuality without technology anymore. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the, the, you know, the, the peer counseling aspect of it, have you seen, 
I know that that you know can be uh, you know something that wasn't very common. Certainly, where I grew up you know, in Utah, it definitely was not a common thing at all. Um, but have you been seeing that growing, or have you been seeing a a, a wider use of that type of a, of, of a technique in order to help kids fac- facilitate those conversations? I haven't actually, um, hmm. uh, at least not in an obvious way. I'm sure that there's programs out there. It's a really good idea. I mean, yeah. I, I think it it really helped me, and I I like to think that I helped other people. And there's just a great program. I've seen it on college campuses, but I haven't seen it replicated in like a high school setting. Yeah. And um yeah. and like you know some of these these kids these teenagers that we're seeing especially in the media now, uh-huh. um, they're they're fantastic. You know what I mean? So yeah. being able to, to harness that energy with with an adult sort of guiding them and direct that that mm-hmm. is really powerful stuff i wish that i saw that more yeah and the reason why i was i really you know that caught my attention is because just this morning i was listening to a ted talk uh by a speaker who it was a psychologist based in harare zimbabwe and he was talking about how in their country um in in, in zimbabwe a country of 14 million people there were only 12 psychologists that were oh available God for the entire population to deal with so many of the emotional health issues. And one of the things that they wound up doing there was teaching grandmothers, who are oftentimes the respected leaders within the community, to, you know, gave them evidence-based, you know, uh, talking points to be able to talk to young girls especially about the challenges that they face, many of them on, you know, sexual level or whatever, and how... That has had a significant impact on the just entire society within within Zimbabwe by reaching out to the grandmothers, and so well, so part of me wonders how reaching out to to the kids, providing them with the tools to be able to have conversations, trusted kids, not peers, what an impact that could have. Yeah, to make those resources more available and yeah, and target them with who the people will feel comfortable talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. That's, I mean, that's, you know, one psychologist for more than a million pe- people at a time. Like that's insane. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, and that's where, you know, what is it? Necessity is a mother of all invention. How some need get to be very creative. <laughs> <laughs> that's if interesting. I, I, um, I've always thought that desperation is the mother of invention. Like lots of things people need that don't get taken <laughs> care of until something hits the fan. And then they're like, Oh, I guess we should do something about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely say I would definitely substitute desperation as opposed to necessity. <laughs> <laughs> At times they got to be one of the same, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They can be used synonymously many times. So are, are there common mistakes that you see parents make when it comes to talking to their, their teens about sex? Well, I mean, like I kind of joked earlier, like the, just like the one time, like there's a percentage of parents who will, you know, go in and like have the talk and then they leave and they're like, oh, phew, it's over. It did I it. I made it. Yeah. It's done. I made it. <laughs> um, they got to go back. It's just, it's one of many conversations. So that, I think the biggest mistake obviously is not, just not doing anything. Um, but, uh, but I guess what's the biggest mistake? Like, I think even like well-intentioned parents can go into things just thinking like, oh, it's just like it was when I was a kid. So we're going to talk about porn and, or whatever the topic is. And then I'm just going to like tell them what happened with me and what my dynamic was. And, and then that should help out. But really it's more about understanding what your kid's life looks like, um, knowing what they're doing with their technology and then and then meeting them somewhere in the middle because it really i think is a different creature than it was when a lot of us parents were our kids ages and so will the next generation be you know entirely different in some unforeseen way too or i don't know i mean i really i think it depends on technology that seems to be the 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 game changer so if we have 3d sex robots in another five years (laughs) then yes when the sex robots come, <laughs> that will be another layer of conversation. Yeah, the holodex from Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking in my own time when I was growing up, and, you know, even though technology has been progressing, and yes, you know, Generation Xers were really the first generation to be exposed to that super rapid 
advancement of technology. Um, nevertheless, you know, I found that you know the I, for me, at least in my in my mind anyway, technology seems to almost be like the great liberator. So that way, you don't have those random anonymous hookups. Like for instance, in my community, that was a thing in my generation. You know, you had to go to parks and restrooms and, and, and rest stops and things like that because there there were no opportunities. You know, the the safe zones were were the gay bars, the you know the pride centers and so forth. Those were people could you know go and be safe. And I was reading something recently how with technology, with the with so many changes that have taken place and, and plus you know younger generations being so much more fluid in their own identities, a lot of those quote unquote safe zones that people from my generation felt, you know, they, they, they could go to, they're lamenting the fact that they're no longer around. Right. Yeah, I so, think that's really interesting. Yeah. Like uh, gay bars and stuff like that. Like, yeah. uh, even here in Seattle, like, there, you know, a lot of them have been kind of mixed into the larger culture or don't exist anymore at all. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I personally am, am thrilled because it means that, you know, there's no longer that, that segregation, if you will. Right. And I um, never enjoyed that. Yeah, and I think there's positives and negatives to it. I like what you said, like mm -hmm. technology is the great liberator. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, like with porn again, for example, like there's always been porn, but then in the 80s, mm -hmm. like you could go rent it and take it home. You didn't have to go to like mm -hmm. that creepy theater down the road or whatever. And then, you know, and then, you know, then there was cable TV and that, that changed how people access that kind of information. And then the internet came. And so there was a whole generation that just, had it at their fingertips and now that's still happening but there's also social media now so like it's there's another layer on top of that you know what i mean i think right. there's always something new that happens for each generation and it's mm -hmm. just I, i'm not against that i love technology it's just for parenting i think to be able to develop a relationship with that thing even if that's not how your generation necessarily did it i've always been amazed how how porn drives technology when it comes to video, yeah, because yeah. I, I was, I, you know, I went to school for film and video and, and worked in the field. Any sort of trade show, I would always go, where's the dark porn corner? Because they were doing stuff no one else was doing yet. And they were like, you know, pay-per-view and on demand and 3D. And they're, they're, they're the first to find a new way to, to show you something different. And how can we change yeah. all this? Stuff? I, I think that is very interesting. Like, I mean, back to caveman days, you know what I mean? They invented fire and they were like, yes, now we get to see naked people in the dark. Like, <laughs> Sure, yeah. Technology's well, always kind of driven that. Yeah. What were the first cave drawings? Probably boobs. Oh. Well, and, and now, too, like I said, with kids, like you can't talk about sex without talking about technology, and you can hardly talk about technology without talking about sex. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's so um, intertwined now. Yeah. Those things are connected. And, and, I think and, and does, have been. does that make conversations easier or more difficult? Probably more difficult, I think, for most people. I don't know. I do it like every day, so <laughs> I'm a little hard to judge with that. But um, I think I just go into it. So we're talking about technology. Eventually, we're going to start talking about sex, and talk about sex. Eventually, we're going to start talking about technology. Um, it, it does seem easier for me, and I think for probably a percentage of people out there. But for some people, I think it's pretty intimidating. So, did you write your books before, or after you had conversations with your own with your own kids? Uh, before. And kind of during, my kids were younger than Mike, so I've got a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old now. Um, and so I've been, you know, wor working around this stuff for years and years and years. And uh, so, yeah, I wrote, wrote the books before I had a, a lot of the specific conversations with my kids. But they both read my books now, so. Yeah. And, That's and nice. when, it, when they were your kids, did you discover that, oh, that, you know, what I thought, well, what I, how I treat strangers is different than how I treat my own family? Did anything like that show up? It is definitely easier talking to other people's kids about it than my own. Uh, but I think I'm pretty good at talking to my own kids, and I don't think I've scarred them or anything like that. So I don't, I don't think they hate me. We'll see I'll give them time. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting you should bring that up, because I remember with my mom being such so, um, so complex, you know, she wasn't very black or white at all. Well, she was very black and white in many aspects, but when it came to that, she was very progressive. And what I found was interesting in my own experience growing up was that my mom was very accepting of, of many people who identified as LGBTQ 
and never had an issue with it and made sure that my brother and I never had any issues with it either. But boy, when it came time for me to come out, totally different thing. Totally different. And the reaction was like, oh no, not my child. (laughs) So it was, it was fascinating. So, so I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. When it comes to your own child, it can be a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And it kind of helps me because I do so much coaching with parents. Um, for, to help them talk about their kids like when i do come up against those moments i'm like oh do i want to go there or do i want to have this conversation like i i can i can kind of make myself so i'm like oh well what would you tell somebody to do in your position like get over it get in there do it so it's kind of nice for me in that in that sense yeah yeah definitely a bit of, a bit of an advantage yeah i don't like being like a hypocrite so i gotta walk <laughs> my gotta walk my talk yeah <laughs> are you there <laughs> You know, we, we've mentioned the uh, LGBTQ community a few times, and, and that, that's your upcoming book is, is focused on that, right? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, uh, due out uh, sometime in June, uh, probably closer to the end of June, but it's, gonna, mm-hmm. it's called The Pride Guide. Um, and same kind of uh, deal, mostly written for kids, section in the back for parents, um, but kind of covering just puberty really with queer kids. There's no, um, you know, I work with teenagers and uh you know, last year, just trying to come up with uh, some resources to give some trans kids that I was working with. And there's no puberty book for trans kids. It's 2017. Like, how could that be a thing? You know, 2017 then. So I wrote it. So it's the first kind of like puberty book written specifically for queer kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited about it. And and what what challenges th- th- does that bring in, in the parent-child relationship we're talking about it? How does, how does that change everything? Well, like I said, you know, a lot of the language is different now. So really kind of going pokey little puppy and starting at zero and saying like, here's what all the letters in the LGBTQIAAT thing stand for, right? And just kind of breaking it down really simply. Um, the trans stuff, you know, definitely gets more complicated. And, and like I said, it, it's hard for people to wrap their brains around. Right. Even the conversation about like, where can you pee in public restrooms? Like it's so ridiculous and simple, but complicated to some people. And so trying to kind of outline all that stuff, like this is what it looks like when someone's going through puberty and they don't feel like they belong in the body that they were born in. Right. Mm -hmm. And their body, it feels like their body is now betraying them because they identify as a girl, but their body is like, turning into like a man's body and, and how do you navigate that and what can you do about it? What are the options? That sort of thing. So that, that sounds like a far more complicated uh, book and, and story to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, definitely a different creature than the first two books, mm-hmm. um, but I have had a lot of fun and learned a lot writing it. I had a really amazing team of uh, LGBT professionals and people that I, is able to bounce things off of, you know, and say like, does this seem right? Like, am I, am I wrong about this? Do I sound like an asshole? Uh, so I've, I had some really great support writing it and I'm really proud of it. I you know, can't wait to, to see it come out. Yeah. Cool. yeah and, and I think that's one of the, one of the things that I certainly was an eye opener for me when having a conversation with, um, you know, with, with a therapist, a friend of mine who helped me understand the differences between sexual identification as far as opposed to gender gender identity you know one's mm-hmm. sexual identity is totally different than one's gender identity yep. now the two could potentially you know go hand in hand but not always not always it's a whole rubik's cube that thing is like <laughs> yeah sex and gender and identity and orientation and expression it's, mm-hmm. it's very complicated. yeah and it was interesting because not long after that conversation, I actually met my, you know, my first uh, trans, you know, and again, became a very good friend of mine. And, and you know, she, you know, was, uh, you know, grew up I did, you know, as male, but eventually was able to have a gender reassignment surgery and so forth and was in a relationship with this just beautiful, wonderful woman. And for, I, because I, the conversation had just recently taken place. It was a little easier for me to figure out the logistics of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like, 
wait a second here. You were a man, now you're a woman. Yeah, I did all of that. It was just, I just remember that going through my head and being so grateful to be able to have had that conversation to understand that there is that difference between yeah. gender identity and sexual identity. Well, cultural window opening up. Oh, yes, very much. And mind you, you know, I, I identify with one of the letters, many of the letters that are there. So, but even then, it's amazing how many people within different communities um, have no idea just the dynamics that are at play. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's hard. It's really, it can be really complicated, especially when you're dealing with teenagers because they're complicated already. Right? Yes, they are. I've, I've got a. Uh, I've met a few people that uh, parents that have trans children that have have come out as trans in their early teens, and mm -hmm. it's just presented to the parents kind of like overnight, and just you know there, there's this this really attempt to support and help the kids figure this out, but seeing what's what they've gone through, the parents like wow, is there support to help parents, you know. I, I lost my daughter and gained a son and I, I'm missing my pronouns up and my child is offended every time I do that. And, you know, uh, do you know of resources for parents that, that find themselves in that situation? Uh, there's a couple that I can't think off the top of my head now, but I could uh, email it to you. You could put it in the notes or something. Yeah, great. Um, but, uh, you know, the usual is like GLAD, PFLAG, uh, those kinds of things are fantastic resources. And some of the children's hospitals around the country uh, Seattle, luckily, is one of them. Um, are having uh, are developing gender clinics at the children's hospitals, actually, which are great resources. Mm. Um, Do you know more about that? What's what's that experience like? What what goes on at a gender clinic? Uh, specifically for things like this, for for parents of queer kids, you know, it's it's culturally, I think it's really hard um, for families, like you were just saying, like. Then now my, my kid is suddenly this minority that we didn't know about or maybe expect to have happen. But, you know, like Jewish kids tend to have Jewish parents and Muslim kids tend to have Muslim parents and Hispanic kids have Hispanic parents and gay kids tend to have straight parents and trans kids tend to have cis parents. And so what the hell do they do, right? Like the history, the culture, traditions, like how do you, how do you weave that into your family when you, you weren't set up to expect that necessarily. So I think um, there's more and more resources popping up around for this dynamic because I think kids are coming out at younger and younger ages, which I think is a great thing. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, I, and I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, that, that it, it's more open-minded, progressive parents, to, to use an adjective, um, that, that search for books, that, that come to your book, um, as opposed to someone who's yes. like, shut this shit down and yeah. don't get a mind kind I, of stuff. I tend to get people who are kind of already invited to the picnic, you know what I mean? <laughs> sort of like the people who are already like down and ready and like and want to get better at it and then the people who are panicking and freaking out. Uh -oh. like those are those are kind of the, the polar ends of the people that tend to kind of find me and contact me. So um I guess that, that the question that comes to my mind is how was the conversation typically initiated with the panicking parents? Because that was certainly the case with mine. Uh, the panicking. Uh, yeah. Actually, it's, it's really kind of sweet. I, I love it when that happens. I, I've gotten um, a lot of phone calls over the last couple of years uh, or emails um, with p parents kind of saying, you know, oh, I think, I think my kid's gay. Like, will you help us figure it out? Like, are they really gay? And, and if they are, that's fine. We're totally down with it. But what do we do? Like, how do we do this well? Right. Mm -hmm. And that is amazing when I get that kind of mm -hmm. opportunity to work with a family and do that. I, I love that. Uh, I haven't gotten a lot of like the, oh, how do we fix them? Like that kind of stuff. Um, I live in Seattle, so it's pretty. Sure. Yeah. It's a little different. Shiny there. blue island over here. So um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to deal with that a lot. But, uh, yeah. but they are, those are definitely out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, actually I've, we've talked about this a few times in some of the past episodes of my own experience going through conversion therapy. And yes. yeah, it was, it was interesting. Um, you know, at the time that I went through it, it was actually known as reparative therapy. Um, I thought that it's, it's curious that how the, the, the terminology changed yeah. um, because reparative was just well, definitely sounded a lot more insidious. Um, yeah. And yes, I mean, I, I 
I have to say, I was on borderline suicidal for most of the time I was there. And the only thing that kept me alive was fear of how my parents would react. But at the same time, there were certain elements to it I found that end up being positive, which was I learned how to actually build positive relationships with people without making it all sexual. So there was nice Those a side benefit. Yeah. 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 And absolutely. I mean, it sounds like you survived it, right? Like I didn't know you had gone through that. I'm sorry that happened to you. That is yeah. awful, but, it, but you made it through. Right. And I, I, I think you've got muscles that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And that also is probably a really good thing. And but I've the fact to be that, grateful. that is still even up to a debate with some states, like states are trying to yes. figure out if that's going to be okay or not to like torture queer kids into not being queer. It's yeah. fills me with rage. Yeah, um, I have learned to be even more compassionate with people who are going through that and even having that discussion because of my own experience with it. Well, that's a beautiful yeah. thing. I think not not everyone who survived that gauntlet can say that, I think. So I'm yeah. glad that you're that Very true. Very, very true. Yeah. So, so I asked you earlier about uh, kind of common mistakes you see. Do you, is there something you see that, that most parents are kind of naturally doing very well that maybe they don't realize? Um, well, uh, one thing I, I talk to parents a lot is that they already know how to do this. So when they do call me and they're panicking and they're like, I have to talk to my kid about sex or my kid is having anal sex or they're looking at porn or, you know, and I just found out they've been looking at porn for three years and they're not even in puberty yet. What do I do? So I, I kind of just try to gently remind parents that like they already have the muscles. We, we do this with our kids. We talk about, you know, seatbelts and we talk about sunscreen, we talk about vegetables and we talk about healthy eating. And, you know, it's, it's the same conversation. It's just about the internet now, or it's just about sexuality now. Um, so reminding them that they already have those parenting muscles there, I think kind of help reduce their panic a little bit. So just remind, it's just a different subject matter. You, you do know how to communicate. Yeah. And in the same thing, like there's times where I've, I've kind of had to hold some parents feet to the fire a little bit when they are resistant because because it can be scary to have to talk to your kid about sex and uh, but I say you know you we don't like that idea of our kids falling downstairs so we talk about handrails or we don't like the idea of our kid being run over by a bus so we talk about looking both ways before you cross the street and so sometimes I say if if, if the only reason you're not talking to your kid about this is because it's making you uncomfortable you probably should get over that and get in there and do it, right? Like nobody likes to think of our kid flying through a windshield that makes us uncomfortable. So we talk about seatbelts. So, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Almost if they can uh, see that the uncomfortableness means you're on the right track. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that goes go hand in hand with parenting. You should be uncomfortable a percentage of the time. That probably means you're doing something right. Yeah, <laughs> so true. <laughs> Oh gosh, you know I have to say that I'm I'm looking forward. You know, fortunately, well, fortunately, but unfortunately for me, because I never had that experience with my with my own kids, um, but being there for them when they start to have those conversations with with their kids. That honestly is just like half the battle. Just being the adult in a kid's life that that is accessible to them and knows what the hell you're talking about. Like if you can be a grown up that does both of those things for a kid, they're gold. Yeah. So we talk about that often the show. So really just being present, being the, the sort of parent or, or adult in any child's life that knows that you can come talk to me about anything. I won't freak out and run away. Uh Oh, Oh, uh oh, Joe is frozen. <laughs> yes, he look, has. Look there you are. Oh, now we're moving again. Froze. <laughs> I'm like, was my question that good? He is just stumped. <laughs> I know, Max. Uh, no, I think yes. That that accessibility is is just huge. So anytime we can do that for a kid. Uh, I mean, there was even, uh, I think there was a study that said that, like, if, a, if, a, if an adolescent has one adult in their life that they, like, can trust and that they give a shit what that adult thinks about them, they'll be fine. So, then, unfortunately, not, not every adolescent can say that, so. Right. So, do, do, is, can it be teachers and coaches that, that are coming to your book as well, and they have to be kind of the experts for any child that comes their way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've gotten some great uh, emails from therapists and teachers, particularly. 
saying, hey, this is great. I have this in my office. It's on my you know, little table in my waiting room, um, that kind of thing. So so, so what, what is the, the best way if someone wants to get in touch with you? Be, be they planning the situation or be they panicking? Cause, yeah. um, email's great um, and, uh, and, and through my website. So uh, is, my website is theheroes.net. And we've got some resources on there for parents uh, in, in terms of like scripts and, and, I, and talking points for how to talk to kids about things like cyberbullying and being on the internet, having a smartphone, like all those kinds of things. Excellent, um, excellent. So when, it, when everyone, when any, wherever you are listening to this, visit realmenfield.org uh, and hit the blog. And we'll have links to all the ways to contact Joe and all of your books. And even when the newest one comes out, we'll, we'll update that as well. Oh, great. Thank you. No, because this is, this is uh, you know, incredibly important. Um, every human being is going to, uh, if they don't have this discussion, they're going to, you know, learn things the hardest way possibly. And, and you know, people like you, books like you, um, people that, that don't sound like an asshole can really pave the way <laughs> and make it easier, right? I certainly hope so. I mean, it's, it's not, there's nothing wrong with not knowing how to have a conversation about something and. Uh, hopefully, my stuff is a good resource for people when they're in a pinch. Cool. And so you you said that you're this you're uh, the first puberty book for queer kids. Is is there still like a hole that that you're shocked that that no one is is creating um, support materials for for uh, another aspect of of youth out there? Uh, I mean, I I think a, a lot of them. I think the the Me Too movement is you know again like a symbol of that as well about. Mm -hmm how to um, be empowered like, as a young woman, particularly. And so next, I think, will come the actual education for boys about how not to be an asshole, right? Mm -hmm. When you're on a date. Right now, it's, I think it's kind of easy for boys to, to be villainized, right? I think boys are kind of misunderstood. I think they're feared. I think they're a little bit scary. And people are, have gotten pretty comfortable thinking like, oh, it's a toxic masculinity. It's, it's, a, it's a boy issue. And so I think the next wave that's going to come, which could be another decade or two out, is going to be how do we deal with boys? Like what can we do for boys when they're young so that they don't grow up to be assholes? Right. Yeah, because toxic masculinity is, is taught. It's passed on. It's not, yeah. it's, I don't, it's, it's not, it's not oh, you're a male. You are toxically masculine. Like, no. Yeah. And I mean, you can think about, you know, like what, what would toxic femininity be, right? And maybe that was the 1950s, right? And it was like all high heels and yes, dear. And, you know, maybe that was toxic femininity. And then we, we've dealt with that and it's taken a long time, right? And there's still many, many issues to be worked through in terms of how women are held and thought of and empowered and educated and interacted with in the world. And, and so I think the, the boys will come next, but right now it's the girls plan. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, th this has been uh, a very intriguing. Again, people can go to beheroes.net to learn more about Joe and reach out and uh, have a panic phone call if they so desire. <laughs> I'm good with panic. <laughs> Is that on your card? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and do you do you actually do you do speaking and traveling or are you primarily a, a local practice and, and your books or? Uh, no, I do. I do lots of traveling, uh, go around and speaking at conferences. Uh, locally, I kind of I do some work with schools and things like that. But I've uh, started traveling. Uh, I'm international now. <laughs> I've been uh, going across the pond a couple of times up into Canada, too. So, oh, yeah, they have nice. sex up there. Yeah. They do have sex in Canada, yeah, and they do everything better than we do here. <laughs> They're much nicer about it. They are. The Canadians are great. Love them. Oh yeah, we have we have several very very good friends up there, mutual friends, Andy and I, up in Canada, and just adore them. Yep. Yeah. Now they they've they've got a a good grip on a lot of stuff up there. So yes, it's always do. nice when I get the opportunity to do that. So, but yeah, I know I love traveling and doing talks. Yeah, you definitely you 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 uh, have the passion and the interest and the knowledge, and yeah, you've uh, you found your niche in the in the coaching <laughs> world, right? In my very very weird job, yes, I have done that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, so the the, the the book the book well, the books are called Spare the Talk, and there's the the version for for boys for teen teen boys, and there's a version for girls, and coming out this summer, the Pride Guide for. Uh, 
everybody else. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So uh, thanks for joining us, Joe. Uh, Thank you guys. Good. This was fun. Good. Uh, come back anytime. Yeah, maybe we'll have you back on as uh, as you uh, have new panic stories. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I got a lot of them. That'd be a lot of fun. And and a comment here in the in the chat from Laurie who says, "No, oh, great show, lots of interesting information." So thank you from Laurie also. Thanks, Laurie. Cool. That, that's my wife. You didn't if you didn't. Usually she's seen here, but uh, oh, so great. Oh, my yeah, wife has learned something new. It's gonna be a fun night. Yay, nice. <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone joining us. Uh, thanks again, Joe. Thanks, Apio. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. And yeah, whether you're whether you're panicked, you're feeling confident. Like, don't be afraid to. Have those uncomfortable conversations wherever they're needed in your life. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Until next week, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Show us some love by visiting realmenfeel.org slash swag or digitaltipjar.com slash realmenfeel. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com and Apio Hunter at apiohunter.com. <laughs>